that opening scene uh, with Marlon Brando. My voice is when he, sweet. when he, uh, well, it's so good. I'm just watching it again. You know, when he looks at the guy and he just says, "You can act like a man," and then two times in that two-minute clip, he turns around. He sees his son Sonny walk in, and that's he turns around and on purpose. He said, do you spend time with your family? Because he knows that his son, Sonny, is running around on his wife. And he says, anybody, any man that doesn't spend time with his family can't be a man. Um, David calls his son Solomon into the bedside of the palace where he is dying. Um, I think it is, uh, what is it, First Kings Chapter 2, if you've got your Bibles, he calls him in there. He knows that Solomon is going to have great difficulty after he dies. He's going to make him king, but he knows that he's going to have a brother that's going to try to assume the throne. He's going to have other brothers that will challenge him and his being king. He's going to have all of the difficulty of overseeing a kingdom He'll have national issues, family issues. He'll have international issues. Listen to what he says to him. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 1, as David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon, his son, saying, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Be a man. You know, you have to almost ask yourself the question, what does it mean to be a man anymore? And the fact of the matter is, I find so many men that would like to go somewhere and turn their man card in. I just want, I just want to opt out of being a man. Um, I shared with you Sunday night a week ago that I don't think that there's a tougher job in the world than being a man these days. Everybody's kicking you. You, you feel like you're being kicked to the curb. You're doing everything that you can possibly to care for your, for your family and to do the right thing. And yet everybody in this society, everybody in Hollywood, everything coming out of universities basically says that if you're a male, you're an imbecile, you're an idiot, uh, you are ineffective at whatever you do, you don't know what you're doing, and that you're just an insensitive brute. You're incompetent and you're just insensitive. And so I find that a lot of guys today just want to check out of the world and say, I give up on this thing of being a man. Well, I want to spend the next couple of weeks with you just talking about that. What does it mean to be a man biblically? Now, I've been doing this for the last, I think, six or seven years. I've always taken the Wednesday nights in September and spent it with men at each of our campus. I'd go to the different campuses that I was pastoring, and I would spend uh, four Wednesday nights with men at least once a year. And so that's what I want to do with you, just us, just us guys. And I want to ask you four things uh, to do, if you'll commit to do. Number one, commit to be here. Uh, don't do this tonight and then not show back up. Uh, commit to be here for the four Wednesday nights. Men are a little slow on the uptake. We're, we're a little hesitant. We, we won't we don't give our motions out too quickly, uh, but give yourself a little bit of time with each other. We need to be here with each other. Number two, bring a copy of God's Word. If you haven't figured it out yet, I'm going to preach out of the Bible every single time I get up. 
So bring a copy of God's Word. It's, I know it's convenient. I'd gotten to where on Sunday nights I would take my iPad with me because I had multiple versions. I could use the Greek. I could uh, tap into some other uh, versions of Scripture to look at. Uh, but then there was always the temptation to go over there and see who's writing on Twitter right now or find out what was the score of the game right then. So bring a copy of God's Word. Number three, don't come alone. Bring somebody with you. I'm going to give you, if I get a chance, I'm going to give you a story at the end of a guy that desperately needed for another man to pour into his life. I can assure you that there's another man in uh, your life uh, somewhere around you that needs you to pour into him. He is in need of somebody uh, to just spend a little bit of time and pour into their lives. And number four, pray. I came in here this afternoon. Nobody else was in here. And I got down on my face right here at these uh, steps, and I prayed for you. I prayed for every chair that would have a man sitting in it tonight, that God would speak, that God would use this hour to do something in your life. Uh, so I've already been praying for you. Pray. Be prayed up when you come in here. Now, the question is this. Why did I pull you, you guys, all, all of you together in this place for four weeks? Well, I've done it for a reason. Uh, any of y'all ever heard of Coach uh, Anson Dorrance? He is the soccer coach at UNC, University of North Carolina. Um, and in fact, he is the female soccer coach and has coached the male team at UNC and is the only guy alive that has ever won uh, NCAA Coach of the Year for being uh, both women's soccer coach and men's soccer coach. Uh, extremely successful uh, coach. And I was reading an article by him several months ago, even then thinking about what I'd be doing with you tonight. He says that you've got to speak to men differently than you speak to women. Now, all of us know that, but we really don't ever think about that. Um, coach Dorrance says this. Uh, he, he says that uh, when he gets into the locker room with men, that he notices that if he'll scream real loud and get mad and turn red in the face and kick a couple of things, that they'll generally do a little better second, you know, in the second half. But he says it has absolutely the opposite effect on women. Uh, it just doesn't work that way with them. Listen to what he says. Women need to feel trust. Men need to feel threatened. So I'm going to threaten you tonight. No. Uh, he said women need to be encouraged. Men need to be challenged. Now, I want you to listen to what he said. He said he discovered that when he got in the locker room with men, that if he did not have film available to show and say, Joe Smith, you missed that block right there. You missed it. Joe, you missed that. He said if he did not speak to men specifically, then every man in there just thought that it was general and he was talking about somebody else. He said when he went into the locker room with women, he discovered that when he was speaking generally, every woman would take it personally. So I am speaking to you individually, personally. I'm not going to generalize. I have tailored this so that this is for every single one of us. And you say, well, what about you? Let me tell you something. I couldn't be up here doing this if I've not already just worked through it in my own life as well. So what I'm saying to you, God is saying to me as well. 
So let's do this. I'm going to take you to Genesis. So just get to Genesis chapter 1. What does it mean to be a man? I don't think we know anymore. I don't think, I really don't believe we know what it means to be a man anymore. I think we've lost all sense. Some people will say, well, you know, when you start shaving, you become a man. Well, you know, we've got a lot, you know, beards are in right now. Uh, I've thought about growing me a soul patch, but my wife won't let me do it. Um, you know, everything from full beards, both my boys, I think ha- both of them have big full beards. Let me tell you, I was shaving in the ninth grade. Um, and I can promise you I was not a man at that time. So having a beard doesn't mean anything. Well, I've had sex with five or six different women. Uh, we've got guys that walk around talking about how many women they've had sex with. This is one reason why I've got just you men in here, because I'm going to say some things to you I won't say. There's not a woman in here now, is there? I'm going to say some things that I probably would not say. Well, I know I would not say if a lady were in here. Um, Uh, You know, a lot of guys are walking around talking about how many women they've had, how many women they've been with, how many children they've had. Let me tell you something. There's all the difference in the world in having sex with somebody and getting them pregnant and fathering a child. Just because you can have sex doesn't mean you're a man. Uh, Maybe it has to do with power, how much power I've got. Do I have enough power to make somebody do what I say? Can I grab a woman and make her do what I want her to do? I've got the ability, the power, the strength to do that. Can I grab up a child and make that child do what I want that child to do? Let me tell you something. That doesn't make you a man. Power, sex, growing a beard doesn't make you a man. There are a lot of men these days that are sitting up to the wee hours of the morning on the internet looking at pornography while their wife is in the bed alone and asleep. Or they're playing video games into the wee hours of the morning and they are half asleep when they try to work the next day. Um, There are men that are sitting up binge watching Netflix every single night while, while a child sits in the room by himself or herself and puts themselves to sleep and you wonder why doesn't he go and be a father to that child and a husband to that wife? There are a lot of guys that are so wrapped up in their own leisure activities, they can't go down and do something for their mom and dad or the widow down the street. There are a lot of guys that are more interested in taking their money and working for money to buy a new toy than they are to meet the needs of their own family. There are a lot of guys that get on uh, social media and they rant and they rave and they throw fits and they cut people to pieces with their tongues and I don't think that's a man. I don't think any of that speaks of manhood. And there are a lot of guys who don't do anything but whine and complain about their needs being met. When God has made the man to be the one to sacrifice in order to meet the needs of someone else. What is a man? And it's frightening in our day. It's frightening to me what's happening with all this gender issue that is flying around. Uh, You know, I just, you have to wonder, are there a lot of guys just resigning from maleness 
and opting to be something else, whatever else. And there's more than just, you know, there's more than just one other thing you can be nowadays. You can be a smorgasbord of stuff is from what I understand. And they're just opting out of all of this. And I just wonder, is it because we've lost what it means to be a man? Well, I want to take you to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, we have this whole story of creation. It's given to you twice. I believe it's because of Hebrew Hebrew parallelism. But I want to talk to you about uh, being a biblical man, biblical manhood, and what does that mean? And so I want to take you to the very beginning and just kind of look at that. And the first thing I want to tell you is this. A man is created by God for God. Now, let me say that again. A man is created by God for God. He created you, and he created you for himself. Um, When you come to this whole thing, did God create a single man? I believe he did. So let me just tell you up front, I believe Genesis 1 and 2. I'm a young earth. I'm a young creationist. Um, I, um, I am a trustee for the Institute of Creation Research. Uh, I wouldn't be on there if I did not believe in a young earth. I believe God made the earth old, just like he created Adam, a full-grown man. Man was created first. God created him first. He didn't create Adam and Eve at the same time, but he created Adam first, and he created him as a full man. Now, think about that. Adam is a full-grown man when God creates him, no father, no mother, no recollection of a childhood uh, whatsoever. But now here's the fascinating thing to me. As God created him, I believe that every day, just as we read later, that God came down in the cool of the day and walked the, the garden, that at every day God spent time with Adam. Now, have you ever thought about that? What in the world were they doing? Uh, football had not been invented at that time. Uh, they didn't play any pickup basketball games with each other. What were they doing? I, I think uh, God was literally teaching Adam what he had just done, that he had created this entire universe. I think he would take him and point his eyes upward to the sky, and he would talk to him about the constellations and the stars and the planets, the sun and the moon and all that he had created. The other thing that I think he did was I think he took him and he spent time outside with him. That's all that there was. I think that may be why there's always this connection between man and the outdoors, is that in the beginning, God walked the garden with Adam. He would show him, now that's an oak tree, Uh, that's a pine tree, that's this, that's the other. There's this over here. If you're looking there in chapter 2, I think it's in verse 15, he places him in the garden, he tells him to cultivate it. That is to till it to turn up the ground, to disturb the earth, to uh, take it and kind of plow it up. And you're going to plant in that. You're going to prepare it to plant something in. So God was taking him and showing him how to be a farmer. He was showing him how to be a botanist. He was teaching him all these things about nature. The third thing that I think he did with him was, I think he was teaching him about the animal kingdom because we're told that he brings all of these animals Uh, before Adam, that he brings these animals to him for Adam to name. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky 
Verse 19, and brought them to man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. And the man gave names to all the cattle and the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. I think uh, Adam looked at these animals and studied them. I think he watched them. He saw their habits. He saw how they were alike and how they were different and what they ate and how they chose a mate and how they mated and how they cared for their young and how long the young stayed around until they grew up and went off. So I think that's what God was doing with him. I think every day God came and spent time with Adam, showing him his creation. And in that, he was telling Adam, you are special. I created you last. All of this I created first. I created you last. All of this was created to sustain you. All of this was created for your pleasure, for your enjoyment. And uh, Adam came to understand that he was special. Every child needs to hear that from their father. Um, Since you're men, I'm not going to talk about women. Every child needs to hear that from their father, that they're special, that they're unique, that they're a gift from God. You know, I was preaching one night somewhere, and I was talking about, I don't believe that there's an oops or a mistake, that every child, every person that's born, God knew there's a purpose for that life. At the end of the service, I had a man up in his 70s run down and grab me sobbing, saying, I was illegitimate, and all my life I have felt like I was a mistake. Let me tell you, there are no mistakes. Every child needs to hear. I believe that's what God was doing with Adam. I think that's what he was saying to him. And Adam comes away from that, and I can promise you this, Adam was not an evolutionist. He was a creationist. And he was a creationist who understood that God created him and created him in God's image. God created Adam in his image. And Adam had no psychological issues. He had no emotional issues. He had no physiological issues because he knew God And because he knew God, he knew who he was in God. Now, there was one thing in paradise that Adam did not have. One thing that was missing. Now, if you can just imagine whatever paradise is for you, here was paradise for Adam, and there was one thing that was missing, and that one thing happened to be something that was like himself. If you'll go back to verse 20, you read it at the end of that, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. That is, there was not anything that corresponded. That word is an interesting word. It Literally, Adam didn't have a mirror, but the word, you, we understand it that way. There was nothing that mirrored him, nothing that, that complemented him, nothing that was just like himself. He watched these animals. He looked at the animals. He studied the animals. He named the, atoms, the animals, but there was nothing like that for him. And so he wanted something like himself. God had even noted, and he said, it's not good for man to be alone. But he waited until Adam understood, I need something to complete me. And at that moment, the Bible says right there that God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. God was the first anesthetist. He anesthetized Adam. And he 
perform the first surgery. He opened up his side, and God took a little bit of bone and took a little bit of flesh. He was the first plastic surgeon. He put it back up together, sealed it back up, closed it back up, and he took that, and the Bible says this, that he fashioned a woman. He fashioned uh, this woman for Eve. He built, in fact, that's what the word literally means. He built uh, this woman for Adam. Verse 22, the Lord fashioned banah in the Hebrew, a woman, the rib which he had taken from man. And he brought her, he performs the first wedding ceremony. He walks the bride down the aisle. He brings this woman to Adam. And listen to what Adam says. This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now I want you to hear this very clearly because of what I'm saying to you tonight. When God brings this woman to Adam, he realizes this is my equal. This is actual bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. This is what is opposite me. This is, I'm looking at me here. I'm looking at what is me. So I say all of that because there is no hint that Eve is less than Adam. There is not even a suggestion anywhere that she is less than what he is. In fact, everything that is stated there lets me know that she is everything that Adam is. But Adam was created first. And that's what I want you men to hear me say tonight. He was created first for a purpose. And that purpose I'm going to talk about in just a few moments, is to lead. But I'll get there in just a minute. In fact, if you go with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, I want you to listen because Paul talks about this order. Now, I'm going to take you to 1 Corinthians 11, which is a little dangerous to do, especially in this day and time, but I want you to listen to the Word of God. I want you to hear Paul as he speaks. Do not read this through the lens of modern America political correctness, okay? Don't read it that way. Let it speak for itself. When you come to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, listen to what Paul, Paul's been talking. They've got, they've got all kinds of issues going on in the church at Corinth. Uh, they're all kind of messed up situations. And you're hearing really one side of a conversation. When you come to 1 Corinthians they had written him a letter asking him about this thing and that thing and the other thing, and he's responding back to it. So we don't really hear what they're asking. We have to surmise what they've asked by what he's talking about. And evidently, they've got some real problems in this whole area of relating to one another. Verse 11, be imitators of me just as I also am of Christ. He says, I'm looking to Christ and what I see Christ doing, that's what I'm doing. What did Jesus say about the Father? I do nothing but that I see the Father do it first. So Paul comes and he says, listen, just imitate me. Do what I'm doing in relationship to one another. Talking about relationships here. He's talking about Christian order. I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just, that I, just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand, now he comes to this whole thing of order. Because there was so much disorder 
in the church at Corinth. He says, Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of every woman, or, or, or the man is head of woman, and God is the head of Christ. Now, I want you to listen to that, and I'm going to ask you a question. Is that saying that God is the boss of Christ? Is that what that says? Now, look, we can talk. There's, you know, we're not on television. We're not on the radio. There is a newspaper journalist here, but uh, you, you can talk. Is that what that's saying? That Jesus is inferior to God. Is that saying that? We wouldn't say that, would we? There's no way we'd look at this and say, well, when it says God is the head of Christ, that that means God looks at Christ and says, well, you're not quite as godly as I am. You're not quite the God that I am. You're not quite a match to me. You're a little less than me. That's not what he's saying. So understand when Paul says that man is the head of the woman, he's not saying that a woman is less than a man. He's not saying here that women are inferior and men are superior. He's not saying that. He's not coming here and saying in this that, you know, you can treat women like they are less than you are because here in Scripture, it's, what it's talking about is it's talking about order. God has created things in order. We can go out and I can pinpoint to you where the sun is going to come up tomorrow morning. Why? Because God created the world with order. We can go out and find the North Star tonight. And if you get out on a yacht out in the ocean and you're out on the ocean and everything goes out, if you've got a clear sky, you can direct yourself. Why? Because God created all of that celestial heavens with order. So he's talking about order here. God is the head of Christ. Christ is the head of man. Man is the head of woman. In other words, there is an order to all of this. There's an order to the, to the Trinity. Uh, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three play different roles in your redemption. So man has a role. Woman has a role. But it doesn't mean that one is better than the other. One is more important than the other. One is inferior. The other is superior. None of that. So don't take this out of context. But God created you first for himself and to lead. And I'm going to come back again in just a moment to that whole thing about that. I've been in counseling situations, guys. I have literally been in counseling situations before. This has happened more than once, more than twice, numbers of times, where I've had a man look at me and say, now, preacher, you need to tell my wife she needs to submit to me. I've had that happen. And I, I, the first thing I think is this. And in fact, I've said it before. This is why I don't do a lot of counseling. That's why we have Lou. I don't do this because I just don't have the temperament to do counseling. I had a guy tell me that one night. And I looked at him and I said, buddy, let me tell you what you want. What you want is you want somebody to jump every time you holler and you want somebody to wag their tail at everything you say and you want somebody to lick and grovel at your feet. What you got confused is you want a dog and not a wife. Well, now, he didn't like that too much. 
And again, that's why I don't do a whole lot of counseling. <laughs> Men get this whole thing of submission all messed up in their mind. Let me tell you, my wife doesn't have to submit to any other man alive, only to me. And do you know what? There are moments when I have to submit to her. I was in yesterday afternoon late in a tile store with her going back and repicking out stuff. And let me tell you, who made the decisions yesterday afternoon? I guarantee you she did. <laughs> and you know what I was there for? To support her, to help her, to help her walk through that, talk to her with that, help her get what she, you know what? I want her to have what she wants. That's her realm. And in that area, I don't go marching in there. It's because it was over by several thousand dollars. And she was in there, Let's, we got to cut this back. And I'm just saying to honey, look, get what you want. Get what you want. Get what you want. We can go to Patrick and borrow money. Uh, so, but she's in there looking at that. And I didn't go in there and say, you're going to cut this out. And you're going to cut this out. And you're going to cut that out. And you're going to submit to me. That is not at all, <laughs> that is not at all what submitment means. Now, here's the whole problem with that. The whole problem is this, is that we look at this and we say, I want my wife to come under my headship. I want my wife to align under me. I want my wife to submit to me. Now, here's the problem, and the problem is right here. The man won't submit to the headship of Jesus Christ. We want her to submit to us, but we're not willing to do what this passage says, and that is to submit to Jesus Christ, that he is the head. And when that doesn't happen, listen, when we do not submit to his lordship over our lives, what we're saying is we put aside essentially that I was created by God and for God. That's not, that's not important in my life. I'm going to live life my way. Go see Charlie Sheen, Harvey Weinstein, Ben Affleck. What a mess that boy's in right now. Go, go look at these people who are worth millions, who date porn stars like Charlie Sheen, who have everything that everybody thinks this is the great. Look at Bruce Jenner, my Lord in heaven. And I don't know what his name is, so I'm not trying to be disrespectful to him. But look, let me, let me tell you, just nothing satisfies. Nothing makes you happy. When there is this refusal to submit to the fact that God has created me and he created me for himself. Now, let me tell you what that involves, guys. It involves this. It involves worship. I was created by God for God, which means I worship God. Every man worships something. Every man. May not be Jesus Christ, may not be uh, the Lord. It, 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 it may be a sports car. It may be um, something in a bottle. It may be a degree. It may be a seat on a board somewhere, but every man worships something. In fact, in Romans chapter 6, listen to what Paul, Paul makes a very good statement about that. 
Romans chapter 6, verse 16, do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in life? All of us are going to worship something. And until we get to the place where we understand that that something is to be God, life is miserable whether you're Mac Brunson or Ben Affleck. You were created by God for God. Number two, you were created to be a leader. Every man wants to lead. You were created to lead your marriage, your home, your family. Now, when God created Adam, it says he formed him. It's a different word, yatsar. He formed him out of the dust of the ground and he breathed Uh, the spirit of life into him. If he had just gone over a little bit and said, okay, I'm going to form a woman here. I'm going to form her just like I did him and breathe into her, it would have been jump ball. We're going to see who's going to win this thing. Somebody here has got to to win. So, you know, Adam did not have to go and arm wrestle Eve to see who was going to lead. He didn't have to, who's going to win at Mexican dominoes to see who's going to lead. Uh, you know, we're not going to have jump ball, see who can jump the highest, run the fastest, any of that. God created Adam first. Biologically, you can see that. When God formed Adam, God created the male to be the one to pass along the genes of maleness and femaleness. That is, he's got an X and a Y chromosome. And when he, when he fashioned different word, when he fashioned Eve out of the rib and the bone of Adam, when he fashioned her, he just gave her an X chromosome. So that even biologically, you look at that when they come together, God built it in such an order and in such a way that they function as one. But you get to this whole thing of the spiritual issue of life. God created man first to lead, not just in the home, not just in the marriage, not just in the family, but spiritually. I find men want to lead, and they want to lead in every kind of area that's out there. What they don't want to do is they don't want to lead spiritually in the home, and they struggle with this. And I want to tell you something. Uh, When God created Adam, he created Adam and left Adam there for him to instruct her everything that he had said to Adam. You ever think about that? All of these things that God had taught and said and shared with Adam, now Adam gets to share and teach and lead and guide and instruct and help his wife come to know. He was the spiritual leader. And in fact, in chapter 3, we may get to that at some point, you see what happens when he doesn't lead. When he just stands there with his mouth shut, if he's even standing there at all, I think he was nearby, I think he was close by, but he never says anything. When he should have been the one intervening here in all of this. So God gives every one of us as men this great and grave responsibility of leading spiritually. And by the way, read Genesis 1 and 2. 
Eve nowhere has issues with that. She nowhere says that I feel less of a person. I don't feel like I'm complete. This is demeaning. Any of that. Eve doesn't pout and say those things. She understands. She has a role that God has created for her. Adam has a role that he that God has created for him. The two are important and crucial to each other. Do you understand why God puts you with the person he puts you with, by the way? Because you have a deficiency. It's the very thing that the law courts today call irreconcilable differences. That's the thing God put you together, and he gave you irreconcilable differences that can be reconciled in him to keep you together, not push you apart. You know who keeps the checkbook in our family? My wife. I don't. You know who who cuts the grass in our house? My wife. I don't. We work together great. We've been doing it for 39 years. I could not tell you. If I were to sign a check, the bank would send it back laughing. In fact, let me tell you, we've had them several times over all this transition. Send back, she's brought them in to me. She says, you have got to resign this thing. I said, Deborah, you sign every one of these things for me. Just sign it yourself. Just sign it and send it back. No, you've got to do it. They don't even recognize me. I couldn't tell you right now. If you put a gun to my head, what, what we've got in a checking account, I don't deal with that. You know why? Because I don't like figures. I don't like dealing with numbers. And she graduated in three years in economics. I'd be an idiot not to let her do it. You say, she may be taking you down the road. She may be, but I'm going with her. (laughs) You've got a deficiency. She has a strength. She has a deficiency. You have a strength. God takes those things and he puts you together. It's not that one is superior and the other is less. Well, you come to that. You know, the best way I know to explain that, let me, let me give you an illustration. World War II, Dwight Eisenhower was a five-star general. There was one other five-star general. You know who it was? Well, that's right. He was over in the Pacific. You got him over there. But there was another one in Europe. Omar Bradley. Now, what in the world are you going to do? You got two five-star, well, really three, but let's leave MacArthur. MacArthur was six-star. Let's, let's just say that. He, he's in a different category of his own. Eisenhower and Bradley. You got two five-star generals. Did they do the same thing in the war? No. Could you have done with Could Eisenhower, could he have done without Omar Bradley? No, he could not. You know why? Because Bradley was the soldier's soldier. He was out there in the battle, directing the battle. What was Eisenhower doing? Tending to Charles de Gaulle and Winston Churchill and coming up with battle plans and satisfying Marshall. That's what he was doing. But both of them, five-star generals, needed different roles, both of them serving Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You see that? You see that? But there are different roles that are there for a husband and for a wife. God created you to lead that. Somebody has to lead. Well, what I'm saying is this, men. 
you're, you're God's man. You're God's man to lead. You're supposed to lead. If you don't lead, let me tell you, your wife will. I have never, as of yet, had a woman walk up to me and say, Pastor, would you pray that God would bring a wimpy, lily-livered, yellow, sit on a sofa, do nothing but eat potato chips, somebody that I can nag for the next 50 years of life, would you pray God would bring? I've never had a woman do that. But I have had women come to me and say, would you please pray God will bring me a godly man who will lead spiritually. Now, you may lead in the finances, but that's not the same as leading spiritually. You, you may lead even with the discipline of the children, but that's not the same as leading spiritually. God created you first to be the leader and to lead that family spiritually. But he created you for something else, and that is he created you to carry out his will. If you go back to Genesis chapter 1 and look at verse 28, God gives them a word right here. You know, Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 give you two accounts. It's Hebrew parallelism. The Hebrews are famous for this. You find it in a lot of the wisdom literature. You'll find it in Proverbs all the time. Uh, the Hebrews would tell it one way, and then they will come back and they'll tell it a second time uh, a little different way. And uh, it's to give emphasis. It's to give, you a, it's to give you a completed picture of all of this. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, it says, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Do you know what subdue it means? It means to pull it under your control. That you and, yeah, listen, if you have children, you understand this. It takes a husband and a wife to pull one of them under your control. In life together, you're to subdue. You're to pull what God has placed before you. Pull it under your control. He says, subdue it, and then he says, rule over it. Um, the pilgrims had an interesting, the Puritans had an interesting thing that they called a, a, a Christian husband and a Christian wife. They called them the vice regents of God. That's what the Puritans would call a man and a woman the vice regents of God. Vice in Latin means in place of, and uh, regent in Latin is rex, which means king. And so what the Puritans meant was this, is that a Christian husband and a Christian wife are the king and the queen here in place on this earth doing this in God's stead. Boy, you ever thought about your marriage that way? You ever thought about your relationship with your wife, your home, and your family like that? God says, I, I've got a will. I've created you, and I've created you to follow my will. And my will is this. I'm going to give you all of these things that are here, but you've got to subdue it, and you've got to rule over it, to work. That whatever God puts in your path, whatever God's called you to do and gifted you to do, then you go after it, and you do it, and you do it together as a team. You didn't just call me. My wife came as well. She's teaching your wives right now. 
We believe God's called us to be in ministry together. Now, my wife's not going to get up here and preach. I can tell you that. Now, I will say at that point, there will be some submission at that, at that stage. That, that's not going to happen. But God has used us effectively through the years in ministering to people. And that's what he's saying right here. God uses the two of you together. And then he says, multiply, be fruitful and multiply. Do you know God gave to you, to man, to us as humans, the ability to enjoy a sexual relationship with our mate that he did not give to animals? The only time these deer that constantly keep coming out taunting me around this church The only time that buck ever pays attention to that doe is in season. Never any other time. And yet God in his goodness to man has created us not just to procreate, but has created us to enjoy each other. And he says, you ought to just go knock yourself out. I've given you each other to enjoy. And that's what he's saying right here. Part of God's will is for you to enjoy your life with the wife God has given to you. And that's an act of worship, guys. That's as much worship as coming in here. The only thing we think is worship is when we sing something. Listen, how you live with your wife is an act of worship to God. How you live together is an act of worship to God. And in fact... If you'll take your Bibles and look over to Psalm 96, listen to what it says there. It says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Now, God created you first to lead spiritually. God created you for himself. God created you to live out and fulfill his will for your life. He has a plan for you to live that out and fulfill it. And all of that involves worshiping him. And you are to be the one to lead your family in worship. And right here, the psalmist comes and he says this, ascribe. That could mean bring to the Lord, but really the word means commit to the Lord. Oh, families of the people, commit to the Lord glory and strength. Men, the one thing I want to leave you with tonight is this. More than anything else, what you need to be leading your family to do is you need to be leading your family to worship. You're the worship leader in your home. You're the guy that God called to be the priest to that family. My dad didn't have but an eighth grade education. He wanted to be a medical doctor. But he was born in 22, and you know what happened in 29 and 30 and 31. There was a depression. Uh, just before he died, I'd go, I'd go home, and I'd say, Daddy, you know, we're going through a real bad recession. Some say it's a depression. He'd look at me and laugh. He said, boy, he said, y'all have no clue what a depression is. He said, did you drive here in a car? And I said, I did. He said, you don't know what a depression is. He said, did you have something to eat today? I said, I did. He said, you don't know what a depression is. But my dad was the spiritual leader in our family. Even after I graduated with a master's degree from Southwestern, my dad was still the spiritual leader of our family. I listened to him. I'd sit at his feet. I'd get up many times in the night 
to go get a drink of water at 2 or 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning. And I'd walk through the den and I'd see the door open and my dad over in a chair kneeling. And I'd, I'd walk by and I'd say, Daddy, what are you doing? He'd said, I'm out here praying. That happened more times than I could possibly count. That's what God's called you to do. It's what he's called me to do. My first responsibility is not to this church. My first responsibility is to my family, to be the priest of my family, to be the spiritual leader of my family, and to lead my family in worship. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying right there. When we miss that, guys, let me tell you, we miss, we miss life. You ever heard of Robert Howard? Robert Howard, you, you may have heard of his name. One or two of you looked up. <clears throat> Interesting guy. He grew up in Cross Plains, Texas. His, father's, his father had a biblical, biblical name. His father was Isaac, but he threw money away, and he kept getting into all kind of get-rich-quick schemes, and the family really suffered through all of that. And uh, Robert's mother finally just decided, you know what, I made a mistake marrying this guy. I'm out of here. I don't want him to have anything to do with Robert. I don't, I don't want him to have anything to do in this boy's life. And she just dominated that boy's life. She moved out and away. She got a job. And uh, she really just put all the screws down on Robert. Robert couldn't have a relationship with anybody. Certainly couldn't have a relationship with a girl. She just was death on any relationship the boy had. She kept such tight control on him. And by the time Robert reached 30 years of age, he couldn't stand it anymore, and he took his life. He walked out to his car, and he took a gun that he had borrowed from a friend and um, shot himself, killed himself. Now, I tell you that story because of this. When they went into his room after the funeral to clean out his stuff, and they started going through the drawers, they came across notebook after notebook after notebook of novels that he had written. You ever heard of Conan the Barbarian? Robert Howard. Robert Howard wanted so badly to be a man that all he could do was sit and fantasize about a man like Arnold Schwarzenegger, Conan, with big muscles, saving women who are in distress longed to be a man, hungry to be a man, and could never figure out what it meant to be a man. The Word of God says, be a man. And be a man means this, be God's man. Bow your heads with me.